Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and I am joined today by two excellent colleagues, uh, longtime Weeds host, Dara Lind. Hello. And Vox Policy Editor, Libby Nelson. Hello. We're going to do a a bit of a non-traditional episode today. We're going to talk about our main topic with Libby for a bit, and then uh, she's going to hop off, and Vox's Jerusalem Demsis is going to come and talk about today's white paper. But first, today's episode is all about student loans. Uh, We brought Libby in because she spent many years covering that at Vox, Politico, Inside Higher Ed, among other places. If you're on areas of Twitter or TikTok where recent college grads tend to hang out, you might have seen the hashtag cancel student debt going around. This has sort of bubbled up since the Biden administration extended the pause on student loan payments through May. Uh, That's been happening through most of the pandemic. And now there's increasing pressure to, instead of sort of pausing payments, uh, just cancel some or all uh, student debt for for ex-college or grad students. But if, like me, you instead mostly follow Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, you'll see that this is also something that a lot of political leaders are invested in. Uh, He has frequently called for Joe Biden to forgive the first $50,000 in loans owed by each borrower and claimed that Biden can do this with executive power alone. Uh, So Biden himself says he only supports canceling $10,000 in debt per borrower, and his administration has said they asked the Department of Education to prepare a memo outlining whether or not that would be legal with the powers that the Department of Education has now. Such a memo has not been publicly released officially by the department. Um, And activists did use a Freedom of Information Act request to get an almost 100% redacted private memo which confirms that such a memo does exist and that they're working on this, uh, but we don't know what it says or if this would be legal. (laughs) But before we get into some of that nitty-gritty, we wanted to start first by talking about some of the policy stakes here and then get into some of the cases for and against debt forgiveness. So Libby, you've covered this for a long time. What's sort of the state of play on student debt right now? So right now, literally right now, um, student loan repayments were supposed to resume next month after having been on pause for almost two years um, since the beginning of the pandemic. They were supposed to resume in February, um, but 
there was a lot of controversy and pushback about payments resuming. And then probably more important, um, we hit the Omicron surge. And so they announced they're pausing again and payments will resume in May. So there's kind of an interesting state of play here where student debt is obviously a huge issue for people who've had loans for a long time. But we also have now like almost two years of college graduates and people who've left school um, and all and all of that who have actually never had to make a low payment. Um, there are people whose loans were in trouble, um, who hadn't been making payments, who have now had almost two years, you know, without having to pick those back up. And so there are a lot of concerns um, just about resuming payments and about how that structure is going to work and whether people are going to fall between the cracks. And then going off of that, we also have the broader conversation about debt forgiveness. I think people have actually forgotten in some ways what the status quo was on student loans prior to the pandemic. But there were a lot of people who were paying just on the standard, you know, you take out an amount of money and you have 10 years to repay it plan. Then there were a lot, a lot, um, I don't even know the exact number of income-based repayment plans, which are all variations on the same theme of your your loan payment is based either on your income or on your discretionary income. Um, and a lot of those plans had some kind of forgiveness element, but the forgiveness had been really hard for a lot of people to access. And so that's basically where things stand now. We have essentially nobody having having been required to make payments for two years. Um or almost two years, and we have sort of the, the the machinery that was already sort of creaky and confusing being about to come back to life. Um, initially, it was supposed to be next month, and now it's going to be, it looks like, later this spring. So a lot of the discussion around the proposals for student loan forgiveness ends up coming back to this like basic distributive question of like, who would we be helping by doing this? So can you talk some about like who the student debt holders are and whether that's, you know, how that is affected by this kind of difference between the longtime student debt holders and this, you know, TNG student debt that you're talking about now? So an interesting thing about student loans in the U.S. is that they are simultaneously incredibly widespread um, in terms of comparisons to any other point in history and to most other countries in the world, while also not being quite as universal as a lot of people with student debt who, you know, mostly associate with other people who have been to college might think they are. So there's a couple of things I think here. Exactly how many people have student loan debt is not something that's measured quite as closely um, as how many dollars of student loan debt that there are. Um, And there's about $1.7 trillion of outstanding student loan debt right now. That is held by people who went to college and graduated and went to graduate school and graduated. And those are the people who, for the most part, um, tend to dominate sort of cultural conversations around student debt. But it's also held um, by people who went to college and dropped out um, and didn't finish. And it's held by, in other cases, the parents of college students. And this is what I think makes thinking about how widespread this phenomenon is uh, to to be somewhat difficult. Because graduating from college with a bachelor's degree is still not an incredibly common experience in America. About a third of all adults in the United States actually have a bachelor's degree. But going to college, um, having some college is much, much more widespread. And the majority of people actually have gone to college um, to some, you know, to some extent, whether that's they finished an associate degree or whether they started and didn't finish. Um, So we're talking about, you know, different kinds of people uh, with different experiences who actually have student loan debt. Um, They're college graduates who have loans sort of in the 
25, 20 to $35,000 range, which is obviously, you know, a lot of money to be owing at the beginning of your adult life. We're talking about people who went to law school, who went to medical school, who have much bigger loans that I would describe as, you know, if uh, if an undergraduate loan is like a fancy car loan, um, a graduate loan is like a, a small mortgage, you know, it's really a lot of debt. Um, and then we're talking about people who don't have have any degree and might not owe nearly as much money, um, usually less than $10,000, but are really, really struggling to pay it back. So at the same time, it's it's both a, a pretty widespread phenomenon, um, certainly more widespread than it was a generation ago, certainly more widespread than it is in other countries. Um, but at the same time, it's really far from universal. It's difficult to put an exact number on on people with student debt. Uh, the most recent report I could find from the Department of Education is that they they record having 42.8 million uh, unduplicated student aid recipients. Um, and so some people get student loans that are private, so those wouldn't be included in that number. But the vast majority of the portfolio is is uh, held by the Department of Education after uh, the Affordable Care Act and and sort of associated legislation. Most of the industry was nationalized and put in, in the Department of Education. But yeah, to, to Libby's point, 42.8 million people is a lot of people. It's also about 16 to 17% of the sort of over 18 population. And so we're talking about a, a very like intensely impacted group of people, but a distinct minority in the adult population. And, and also, I think, given what we know about education polarization, and the movement of, of uh, sort of people with advanced degrees toward the Democratic Party, and also the concentration of student loans among young people disproportionately, is a population that's, that's kind of Biden's base. And so on the one hand, that might imply he wants to do things for them, but it also might mean that he can kind of, he, he doesn't need to persuade them. Um, this isn't something that's going to like turn the state of Montana. The other part of this is just that having not having great data makes it harder to persuade politicians. The kind of like, even as a, more information comes out, like the Wall Street Journal did a killer investigation this past year on graduate school debt and and tuition and the extent to which like a lot of graduate programs have become a way for universities to generate revenue that don't necessarily give the career benefits that they promise, um, that you still have this a little bit generationally out of date idea that if you are getting a four year college degree, or certainly if you're going post college, you must be in enough position. You must be in a position where you can easily repay any debt that you incur. Um, you must already have enough economic capital, enough social capital that like you are not a distributive politics concern. And not having great data on who exactly is affected by this, even as we know that there is a group of people who are intensely affected makes it that much harder for advocates to build the case and frankly harder for politicians to do the calculating of whether there actually is going to be tangible benefit of the sort that's going to persuade people to vote for them next november uh so libby i wanted to ask a, a bit about uh more about a point that you were making that sort of the, the college finisher and college attender populations are quite different and that sort of the the median american is someone who went to college but didn't finish it it does seem like when we're thinking about sort of the student loan problem. There are there are different populations that people have different amounts of concern for. I uh, one of my best friends in the world is a theater director who's applying for MFA programs. I am am not going to help him forgive his loans for that. That is his own decision to make. Uh, I love you, Nick, but come on. 
Um, and then on the other extreme are people who like got taken advantage of by for-profit colleges and often left without a degree and in, in very extreme debt or people who uh, weren't able to finish college due to sort of life circumstances and still have debt from it. What's your sense of sort of how big a share of the student debt load sort of people in that sort of special concern case are of, of sort of for-profits or, or non-finishers? People who attended for-profit colleges are a fairly large share of, of student debt relative to the share of students who actually attend those colleges. But where they really show up um, is they're a much, much larger share of the people who end up defaulting or, uh, in other words, you know, not paying back their loans. And that's where really prior to there being a lot of energy for some kind of broad-based forgiveness, um, the Obama administration was really focused on measures that would either reign in those colleges um, and sort of crack down on their practices the idea of sort of retroactively forgiving the debt um, of people who'd already taken on is actually much, much newer. And that really has only come into the conversation 10 years ago, 10 years ago this year. Wow. I wrote a story uh, about the 2012 election and student debt, um, be, it being really the first year that student debt was in the mainstream as a political issue. And it starts with a lead about a guy who um, was petitioning for broad-based student debt forgiveness. And it's basically, it, it goes on and says something like, of course, everybody still thinks that's a crazy idea. But the idea <laughs> that like student loans are, you know, an important policy issue has really gained some currency. And it's like, it's a wild Overton window moment to read that and be like, nobody anymore is saying, you know, that's a completely crazy idea. We can't even consider it. Um, so this is really, to a degree, a movement that rippled out of concern about for-profits. Um, some of the debt jubilee work, some of the activism around student loans started as activism around for-profit colleges. And then through the Occupy movement, through other things, it sort of drew into its orbit people who have debt from, you know, going to private colleges and, and, and borrowing in order to afford the tuition, um, people who went to public colleges where states are picking up less and less of the tab. And so I think this, this actually, I'm like groping toward kind of a, one of the big questions here, which is, what does student debt relief accomplish systemically? Um, you know, there's 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 a reparative sort of cast to this of, wow, we let the system get really screwed up. It's gotten increasingly screwed up over time. I think all of that is true. You know, there are people who were taken advantage of. There are people who weren't, like, taken advantage of in the sense that colleges were making them promises that they couldn't deliver. But there are people who in the 70s, would you know, wouldn't have had to take on this level of debt to attend a public college. And so a lot of the push is, you know, we should do something about that. What we do about that after we forgive the debt for those people is a much harder, more open question. And I think it's why even in some progressive policy circles where there has long been a lot of concern about debt, um, a lot of concern about for-profit specifically, there isn't always as much enthusiasm about broad-based, wide-sweeping forgiveness as you might expect. Um, and it's really because of that question of like, Okay, so you know what now? We helped the class of 2020, but what but what about the class of 2024 who are already about you know who are already taking on those loans? Um, what does this do to not just to sort of repair a system that broke earlier, but to make sure that we're not you know in this position where we're just doing broad based massive student loan forgiveness every four or five years? There's one other aspect of the who question that I wanted to drill down on, and that's the kind of racial equities of this because obviously. 
as I as the overwhelming majority of not every Weeds listener knows, because it's not like this is the first time it's come up on the podcast. The racial wealth gap is, you know, substantial and persistent. And obviously that has a pretty big effect on whether, you know, non-white and particularly black students have families that can easily cover the cost of tuition. What do we know about the racial considerations here? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of things. One is that, yes, there is a huge racial wealth gap angle to student debt for precisely what, what you're saying. It's it's sort of, you know, whether or not you have to take on debt is fundamentally about the resources that you have, but almost more often about the resources that your parents have or even your grandparents or your great-grandparents have because there's a lot of intergenerational assistance with college tuition. The number of loans where people owe more than they originally borrowed because of compounding interest, because they haven't been able to make, you know, the high enough payments um, is massively, massively higher for Black students than, than for white students. So student loan forgiveness would disproportionately help people who have student loan debt who are Black because there is a really massive racial gap in terms of how much people have to borrow and often how um, how quickly and how efficiently they're able to pay it back. But there's also, especially when you look beyond like current college students, um, there's also a big gap in who attends college and especially who graduates from college. And so while it can be true that people who take out student loans who are Black end up with more debt and end up struggling more with that debt. It's also true that proportionally, especially historically, more white people have gone to college in the first place um, and have taken on that debt. And so that's how something can both be a contributor to the racial wealth gap without being necessarily the main driver or forgiveness being able to erase it entirely. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. After we're back, we're going to dive a bit into solutions for student debt and sort of what a progressive and well-targeted forgiveness program might look like. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. 
listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, we're back. Uh, so we, we talked a bit about uh, the basics of the student debt problem. Uh, Libby talked us through uh, a lot of the, the data there and, and uh, sort of where the problem is most acute. So let's talk a bit about solutions. So I think part of why we're all talking about student debt right now is that it, it seems like something that maybe the Biden administration could do on its own without Congress. Um, it is not in Build Back Better or any other sort of legislative proposals being weighed by Congress right now. And so if it any kind of forgiveness happens, it seems like it would have to happen from executive action. And I'm not sure if that's totally ironclad legally. Um, Luke Kareen, who's a, a scholar at Yale, has been making this argument for many years, and, and it has to do with uh, the Department of Education's ability to settle debts. Um, but I, I think there are decent arguments that, that that power does not cover mass cancellation. But keeping that in mind, how do you guys think about sort of how we should target uh, debt relief, that it seems like most of the debate right now is happening in terms of dollar sizes, that the Biden wants the first $10,000, Chuck Schumer wants the first $50,000. But it sounds like if we can, we might want sort of more nuanced kinds of relief. Libby, how, what are some of the sort of main ways of thinking about this? Yeah, I would actually disagree with with the idea that a more nuanced kind of relief would, would ultimately be better. I mean, the okay. case for it would be that the education department certainly is able to identify where you went to school. This, I think, springs from the idea that there are groups or classes of borrowers for whom either the case for forgiveness uh, is sort of a form of reparative justice is stronger. Um, I'm thinking about the for-profit students or for-profit dropouts particularly. Um, there are people for whom loan cancellation would make a bigger difference if we were to think in terms of your debt-to-income ratio or your debt-to-like a potential income ratio in, in the case of lawyers who borrow, you know, like a truly horrifying amount of money but then end up earning a truly horrifying amount of money later on. So I do think you could construct a program that's like if you went to a for-profit college between this year and this year when there were really no, not very many firm regulations, there's a strong case that you sh- you could be able to have your debt forgiven. Um, what concerns me about that is that the federal student loan repayment programs and the student loan system in general is already overloaded with nuance and with choices. One of the big issues is that there isn't one, okay, everybody pays back their loan based on income and it's forgiven after X amount of time program. There's like seven of them. I'm not even going to look up exactly how many because it's astonishing. Um, and they're always like, maybe we should create a new repayment program. And I'm like, no, maybe you should not have 17 different repayment programs. Um, public service loan forgiveness, which is the closest thing we have to a targeted loan forgiveness program in the United States, is a mess. Um, and it's a mess because you have to certify that you've been working in this profession, that you've done it for 10 years without a break. Um, I know somebody who literally works on this subject. Like she is an expert on public service loan forgiveness and the repayment of student loans. And she has had an incredibly difficult time getting her own loans certified and forgiven. And this is somebody who is in like the top like 10 or 15 people in America in knowing and understanding this program. And so I do think like I think you have to talk in terms of dollar amounts because I think anything else ends up getting so convoluted and complicated that it's not going to reach the people that it's meant to help because they're going to, you know, there's going to be paperwork errors. Um, I think that's where we sort of get to the question of, is it $10,000? Is it $50,000? Is it all of it? 
I have really gone through like a journey on this. A year ago, I was pretty bullish. That's the good one. I was pretty bullish um, on student loan forgiveness. I really thought there was a decent chance that the $10,000 that Biden had promised on the campaign trail was going to happen. Um, And I thought that for a couple of reasons. That is going to get the people who, while they don't dominate the conversation, really do suffer the most from student debt, which is people who took on debt to get degrees that they never finished. For the most part, these people do owe less than $10,000, and they are very often caught up in student loan default, which is which is hell. Like, please make any kind of payment on your student loan if you can. It's really, really bad to get in a situation where you're in, you're in default. They can literally garnish your wages. They can garnish your social security checks. It can go sort of all the way up. And that also gets, you know, a fairly meaningful amount for the typical undergraduate, it would be between half and a third, depending on how long you've been paying your loans out, if you owe around thirty dollars to $35,000, um, if you've been making payments for a couple of years. But really, the reason I thought it was going to happen was that we were in a context of massive stimulus. And forgiving $10,000 of debt seemed like actually a pretty decent stimulus to people who probably would spend that money, you know, on, on something else. Um, it, when you're talking about people who have degrees, have jobs, and are doing okay, but would prefer not to have debt, um, and would make a really big difference in the lives of people who aren't in that position. I think, unfortunately, what we're looking at now is an economy where the concerns are much more about inflation, where, hey, let's do a little bit more extra stimulus is like not something that's going to get the amount of, okay, this is fine, um, reaction that even maybe people who weren't like super concerned of the moral urgency of canceling student debt or were concerned about the distributive effects probably still would have, you know, I could see that still winning over people of like, we'll give some highly educated consumers a little more money every month and we'll, we'll get the economy going again. I think without that argument, it's really hard to see this happening. And I think it's, I think anything more than $10,000 was probably always dead in the water. Like that was that was Joe Biden's bid and they really haven't ever gone higher than that. The thing about the $10,000 is I I'm not sure I fully understand how this is actually being scoped out, right? Because President Biden's argument appears to be twofold. One that he isn't willing to, which seems like a straightforward, if not, if, you know, politically movable position. Two, that he doesn't believe he has the legal authority to do more, which gets back to the question of this, like, secret redacted memo and what the Biden administration has actually, like, had its lawyers determine and where in the process that is. But it also strikes me as a fundamentally weird legal argument to make that, like, somehow you're legally authorized to to, that you're legally authorized to unilaterally forgive debt, but you're not legally authorized to unilaterally forgive m- more debt. Um, is there any yes. <laughs> right? Like, is is there is there any prospect that the number here is going to end up getting determined by this question of whether it's legal, or is it really just going to be a binary? Either it's ten thousand or it's zero, and we won't know whether what role the this secret Department of Education memo ever played in creating political will or not? I think all of us here literally on a podcast called The Weeds, um, and many of us at Vox, and many of the people who like like to write about policy and legal issues would love for the real question here to be legal authority, <laughs> because it's interesting and it's naughty and we can dig into it. I will plead guilty to that. Yep, fair. I don't think that's the determining factor. I think if you look at how presidents have used executive power over the past few administrations, if they thought there were a justification to do it and they really wanted to do it, they would try it and see. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm being too cynical here. But 
my impression is generally, maybe a little bit less so with this administration, but I'm thinking about, you know, Obama's very strong pivot to executive action. Um, I mean, Dara, this gets a little bit into, into your yep. bailiwick with DACA and DAPA. Um, generally, if they truly believe there is a moral and a political urgency to an issue and there is a legal justification to try it, even with the Supreme Court that might not eventually let them do it, which, oh my God, would that be a mess? you would see an attempt. Uh, and I, right. I, I do think like the legal, I think the legal authority questions are really interesting and I would like to talk about them more because they are interesting, but I am not sure like what exactly is in that quote unquote secret memo, which is very funny if you open it, it's like six pages of just pink redaction. So it's like a memo existed and some people wrote some emails about it. That's what we know about it. Um, I'm not sure it's like a smoking gun on why Biden hasn't forgiven student loan debt. I think he hasn't forgiven student loan debt because it's not a priority for him. I think that's like, that's the answer. I think we can make some educated guesses as to what is in that memo, not as to where they ultimately come down on it. But like the way that intra-administration questions of legal authority generally go is we know we're going to get sued. Is it worth the fact that we're going to get sued? And do we think the courts will ultimately rule in our favor? And like from that perspective, it really does come down to a political will question anyway of if we know we're going to end up going to the Supreme Court. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like the right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the litigation. But like the litigation risk is, you know, is not something that they appear to be willing to take on is it appears to be the upshot of the hot pink redactions, even if it wasn't the upshot of the memo itself. <laughs> I mean, literally, we can't read a word of this memo. We have no idea what this memo says. I want to be extremely clear about that. We know, like, um, a lot more about certain CIA programs than we know about this memo. <laughs> I also, like, whatever, like, education department lawyer, you know, research something for, like, a couple days or, or whatever uh, is probably living a very interesting life right now. Like, somebody should redact my emails and be like, let me secret emails. And it's like, you just, you just didn't release them. Um, anyway, I think the legal question here also, like, really, truly is really thorny. Um, there are some interesting tax questions around forgiveness, which one way we can tell that this conversation has really not advanced to the realm of this is for sure going to happen is that there hasn't been more talk about them. Um, a forgiven debt is often counted as income. And an issue that is going to come up with, uh, with, with large amounts of loan forgiveness is that they then come with large tax bills. And so that's not like completely like, presumably, you could also write a regulation that says it's not taxable. Uh, but that's like, that's a big issue. And I, I just think of that as kind of a signaling of like how seriously this conversation is really happening, that that's not maybe as much in the discourse as, as I would expect it would be. Um, you know, what if the debts are all canceled, and then a federal circuit court judge says, no, you can't do that. And then it goes to the Supreme Court, like, literally, what happens to student loan borrowers, you know, in the interim, while a case works its way works its way through. Obviously, that's not unique to student loan borrowers. There are lots of people who are caught up in convoluted legal things and, and end up in some kind of status limbo while it, while it proceeds through, but that's definitely a situation we'd be in. And I think because forgiveness is generally extremely individual in the United States, um, you can petition to have your debts canceled like if your school closed under certain conditions. Um, you can have your debts forgiven in theory, although really many, most people have not been able to do this, uh, if you're working in public service with federal loans for a certain amount of time. But the thing that all of those things have in common is it's very like, you fill out the paperwork and it's very specific to your situation. And we haven't ever done a like, okay, just, you know, let's just say everybody who graduated 20 years ago, because you should have made a lot of loan payments by now. Um, and we're just going to let that go. Everybody's debt is canceled. Like what that literally looks like 
honestly presents some logistical issues that I don't think are insurmountable. Like, it's, you know, everything has a logistical side to it. But I think the fact that there has not been a lot of grappling with that suggests to me that, like, they're not just waiting for a good legal opinion to, to, to launch this thing into motion. Like, there's a lot of knock-on effects to think about and to plan around that there doesn't seem to be a lot of conversation around right now. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the situating of this as an executive action does affect how I think about it to, to a substantial degree in that you'll sometimes see arguments against uh, student loan cancellation from, I think David Leonhardt wrote some of the classic pieces on this, on, just on the grounds that it doesn't benefit people who didn't go to college at all, most student loan debt seems to be be held sort of higher up in the the income scale. Most of the uh, not most of the debt, but sort of a very disproportionate share of of student loan debt is is held from graduate degrees. And all that in in the context of like arguing about whether Congress should spend a trillion dollars erasing student debt or whether it should spend a trillion dollars like sending out checks to everybody makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I, uh, if that's the choice, I think you should send out checks to everybody because that would sort of do a better job of targeting people at the bottom. In the context of executive action, like, they can't just send out checks to everybody. This is a, this, if this is a power they have, it's a, a fairly unusual power they have, and it's one of the few kind of economic policies they can enact without Congress. And so the question I, I ask myself then is, like, is, is not, is this better than spending an equivalent amount of money on something else, it's is this better than than doing nothing or doing something else that they can do with this power? Um, which, as you say, there there hasn't been a lot of like creative discussion about. Uh, the income based repayment program is a mess. Uh, there have been pro sort of proposals over the years. Uh, Jared Polis, who's now governor of Colorado, had one when he was in the House that would sort of put everyone on income based repayment and try to rationalize that. That seems like a really good idea to me, but I don't know if that's something you can do without additional legislation and additional le legislation might not be forthcoming. Um, oh boy, Dylan, are you in the middle of my absolute nerdiest sweet spot of knowledge, <laughs> which is how exactly the education department does regulation? Um, because I agree. Like if I, if I were to say, okay, the legal footing for forgiving $10,000 of debt is shaky and I want to look at other options. I'm not going to go into whether I think, I think there's a really strong case economically and morally for $10,000 of, of, of debt forgiveness, frankly. Um, but if we're to say, okay, that's off the table. What would we do? Yes, I would just throw everybody into the world's simplest income-based repayment. <laughs> However, the way the education department does regulations is through a consensus process um, that not every other agency uses. I'm sorry, this is the most boring thing in the world. But Go it for it. Really this important. is the weeds. Um, Go for it. Which, which means that anytime the education department basically wants to do anything regulatory, they sit in a room with the department, with stakeholders from the colleges involved, with other stakeholders and groups, um, with outside experts, with there's like one or two seats for advocacy groups. It is a much more um, bulky, kludgy process than in a lot of other industries. It's called negotiated rulemaking, um, which they call NEGREG for short, which doesn't even really make sense. I have spent many hours of my life in windowless rooms watching this process unfold. The department can ultimately kind of do what it wants. Uh, but they do have to go, like they, the department ultimately writes the regulation. It's not like they sit down and are like, okay, here's section A, here's section B, here's section C. But they have to make an attempt to reach consensus. Anytime they want to make a regulation, they have to do this. And so in many departments, I think you actually could say, okay, everybody's on income-based repayment now. We have taken executive action. This is the executive action we have taken. It is drastic, but we clearly have authority over loan repayment. 
the education department, you cannot do that. It would be like six to eight months of panel discussions. And then you have to officially not reach consensus and fail. And then they have to do a proposed rule and then a comment period. And like, I'm not sure why education functions in this very specific way, which is fairly unusual. There's only a couple of cabinet agencies that work this way, but it does. Um, and that is really one of the things that makes executive action on this stuff tricky. So the other thing about executive action is kind of the fact that the politics of it are more straightforward, right? Like, you know, I don't want to be like too normy about this. I think that it's, you know, it can kind of go without saying that like if Biden made a campaign promise and was then elected president and like it doesn't fill that promise, then like, oh, you know, voters will probably forgive that. Or like we, you know, we can't really tell which promises are going to be people will care about and which ones they won't. But like, the fact remains that he made a promise on something that at the time he said could be done, or at least like he never said he would need Congress to do, and certainly implied that he would be willing to do, you know, through executive action. And like, I kind of wonder in the same way that we, you know, we talk a lot about this in terms of business, right? That like the predictability of regulation is almost as important as the substance of regulation because, you know, businesses are making future economic decisions based on what they anticipate the government is going to say. Like, especially when we're talking about the current generation of college students, people may very well have made life decisions based on the expectation, not only like based on the current environment of deferral, but also based on the promise of a certain amount of forgiveness. And like, do we morally take that into consideration as like moral hazard? Like they shouldn't have done that because it wasn't a sure thing. Or do we take that into consideration as something that like needs to be addressed because it was, it was a promise that was made? I will say... I was more surprised that they were actually restarting student loan payments than I was that they ultimately suspended them because it does feel like Congress loves the cliff. Government loves the cliff. We are setting up sort of a, I mean, the fact that people have not had to make a loan payment in two years, you know, is that's a long amount of time to have not had to make loan payments. Um, I think the question of how people act on this information, it's just really tricky to anticipate that kind of thing, like, because you can't control, as we've seen, the amount of misinformation out mm -hmm. there. Like, I hope people were not taking on a lot of debt, assuming it was going to be forgiven because of, like, enthusiastic chatter in the 2020 Democratic primary. That would be very unfortunate um, if that were a thing that were to have happened. The moral hazard I worry about is the moral hazard for colleges. We have seen this with public service loan forgiveness at the graduate level. There have even been colleges that have sort of gamed systems of like, we'll repay your loans for a while and then you'll get them forgiven. The expectation, you know, the role that colleges play in all of this um, is talked about less than the role, you know, than, than sort of the impact on individual students or sort of the broad idea of like our system. But like colleges are also actors that are acting here um, and that generally are willing to raise their prices when and if they can to the extent that they can. And I'm, I've done a lot of reading on sort of the connection between federal loans and, and, and college pricing. And I want to be very clear that I'm not saying it's a one-to-one -one relationship or that the availability of federal loans is why college tuition is expensive. I don't think that's necessarily true. And it certainly hasn't been borne out by research. But Colleges are nonprofits, but that does not mean most colleges are nonprofits or, or public institutions, but that does not mean that they have no use for money and that they do not want to bring in <laughs> revenue. Um, and I think that is something that, you know, we need to keep in mind. And it's why I, I'm really passionate about the idea that 
yes, the system is unsustainable, but we have to look forward as well as backward when we're thinking about how we how we repair it. Because, you know, there's nothing I think that justifies more the tuition that, you know, say, I won't name names, but say expensive private schools in, in big urban centers um, charge to their undergraduates than saying it's okay, you know, you might have some private loans and those the government can't take care of, but all the rest is going to be wiped out, you know, five years from now because that's how we do it now. Like that's that's a that's that's a big risk that is ultimately borne by the students, um, even if the moral hazard part in play is is with the colleges. Yeah, and I think that that gets into why this as as the only thing you can do with executive power is so it's such a sticky situation to be in. In that ideally you would want to pair it with reforms that could constrain cost growth and reduce that moral hazard problem at colleges that would avoid things like uh, there was a documented case where uh, Georgetown Law was like caught giving some presentation saying, you know, we just jacked up tuition so that we could promise our law students that we'll pay their loan payments until they're forgiven. But we don't actually lose any money doing that because we just like raised tuition commensurately. Like those kinds of schemes are everywhere and you want to avoid them. And I that's the kind of thing where you need a wholesale overhaul of of the higher ed system. Um, a lot of negotiated rulemaking. Right, right. A lot of neg regs um, as opposed to sort of uh, a one-off forgiveness that might have these kinds of like hard to anticipate ripple effects that wind up making college more expensive going forward. Yeah, that's why I really think the strongest case, practically speaking, for forgiveness was stimulatory and the, 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 the time we're most likely to see it, because I think we probably will see some form of loan forgiveness at some point, you know, in our in our lifetimes is probably in conditions that economically that are more like they were a year ago than they are now. Well, I, I think we should take a break and do our white paper. Thank you so much uh, to Libby for uh, for coming aboard. Uh, she's going to drop off and Jerusalem Demsis, who you all know and love, is going to come and talk to us about the Civil War. And so, epigenetics. Epigenetics and the Civil War. Get excited. And we're back. Uh, welcome to Vox's Jerusalem Demsis. Hello. One fast talker for another. <laughs> we we trade, but we we keep the pace. Uh, this week's white paper from UCLA economist Dora Costa is a very neat bit of economic history. So she's looking at the effects of going to a POW camp in the Civil War on prisoners' grandchildren. So she's looking at grandchildren of Civil War veterans and comparing ones who were grandchildren of prisoners of war, and particularly prisoners of war during a period in 1863, early 1864, where there were long stretches of time uh, in prisoner of war camps. Uh, she explains that sort of before that and after that, most POWs were just traded uh, between the, uh, the sides pretty rapidly, and so people didn't have long stays. But in 1863, uh, in the aftermath of the Emancipation Proclamation, Confederate camps would not do trades for black soldiers. And that meant sort of longer stays in, in POW camps, including sort of really brutally awful places like Andersonville. And so she's comparing people during that period to people who were POWs but got sent back pretty fast to people who were never POWs. Uh, and she finds that grandchildren of POWs in, in, during the brutal period were 10% more likely to die each in any given year after the age of 45, uh, the grandchildren of veterans who were not POWs. Uh, and were and they were also more likely to die than uh, grandchildren of veterans who were POWs in sort of more humane period. 
So like 10% more likely to die each year is, is a really big effect. And interestingly, it, it seems to only happen for sons, not female descendants of uh, grandsons, not female descendants of, of the veterans. For, for male line grandsons, for sons of sons. Sons of sons. Yes, that's right, Dara. So she looks at some possible explanations for this. Maybe it's sort of social that that you have like a mean grandparent because they went through some shit. Um, but uh, but her conclusion is that it's most likely epigenetic. Um, so her, her claim is that being in a POW camp likely changed the DNA of the prisoners in a way that was inherited by their grandsons and damaged their grandson's health. Um, I don't really have an immediate reaction to this other than like that's pretty crazy. Jerusalem, what, what did you make of this? The male line thing is what's what's really important here. So obviously the Y chromosome is passed from your father to your, from father to sons, because women always give an X chromosome and, and men give a Y chromosome. So what they find is that there's not, they don't find this effect for grandsons. They don't find it for grandsons of their daughters. They just find it for sons of their sons. And I mean, I was struggling at the time because, I mean, this just seems like if someone just said this to me randomly on the street, like this feels like very far fetched. (laughs) Like if I didn't have all this data, I'd be like, this feels like, I don't know, like maybe it's the case that like fathers more likely have relationships with their sons in general. And therefore they have a close relationship with their son. That son's going to have higher impact than what they would have with their daughter. Like maybe there's something like that going on. Obviously, it's hard, impossible to control for something like that. But her reasoning throughout the paper is like pretty, pretty substantive. And epigenetics is like, you know, a relatively new field. But there are a couple other papers that have shown similar things. I think most prominently, people probably heard of, of a Swedish study that showed that if a grandfather had access to a lot of food in um, the years before puberty, his grandsons were found to have an increased risk of cancer. This is a, the overcolic study in Sweden. And, and you know, like there's stuff like this and be, they found this in mice and stuff too. It really is quite shocking if this is something that happens because if it does happen, obviously this is a, a case where we can very easily measure a massive trauma and then, you know, trace it to grandchildren. And like, luckily there's like relatively good um, records going on at this time period. But like, there's a lot of trauma that happens to people all of the time, both like small and large. And like, if this is impacting you like generations later, there doesn't really seem to be a policy response to this. It's just kind of like, yeah, that like really sucks. Like you might die because your grandfather like didn't have food or did have food or like was a prisoner of war and ni- and like one year versus another. And that seems just extremely bad, not just in general, but also like distributionally, if you consider as we're trying to close gaps, uh, racial gaps or gender gaps in different um, spaces, like, you know, how do you control for that? How do you change or how do you uh, get rid of those gaps if, if, if it's just in your genes at some point because of massive trauma that's been imposed on your ancestors. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Jerusalem, in terms of like, man, genetics is an awfully strong place to go for, especially for an economic history paper. But like, maybe it's just that neither of us are super familiar with like papers where nature is an option on the table, but it did seem very closely reasoned. Like if someone who's an honest to goodness, you know, genetic researcher wants to read through this and tell us whether this is actually really shoddy reasoning, I think that that would be welcome. But it certainly it certainly does seem to build the case pretty strongly that like any given social social or environmental explanation you could provide would not be specific to the sons of sons thing. The interesting thing for me is that if this is true and, you know, not just for like this finding, but if it is you know, if the implication that Y chromosome epigenetics are really substantial in mortality is a thing, and that's also where the the Swedish study goes, that says a lot about how we think about prenatal care, 
right? There's a lot of emphasis on what pregnant people should do in order to have the healthiest possible child. And there is much, and, and like even people who are trying to get pregnant, and there is much less emphasis on if you are going to be contributing sperm to a child or like like to, you know, to fertilize an egg, then you need to be, you know, living a healthy lifestyle or you need to be reducing sources of stress in your life, you know, or like this is now a public policy concern because we're putting a lot of stress on this class of people that's going to result in, you know, health outcomes for their, ch- for their children and children's children, that sort of thing. Like it is... I don't think we're anywhere near the point where this is going to like trickle down into like health sections of local newspapers if local newspapers were still a thing RIP but it it does raise some very interesting questions about how we frame the individual versus systemic conversation about prenatal health. Yeah, I mean I think in general it's just about responsibility for health is like considered very individual in the US we're witnessing that of course with COVID in general but Whenever we have research like this that just shows like how much of this stuff is really out of individuals' hands, like obviously like you could give advice to people all the time, like reduce your stress. This is going to cause problems. But uh, you know, even the finding from the um, from the Swedish study that I mentioned is like kind of you know counterintuitive. It's it's grandfathers who had an abundance of food in the years before puberty that had their grandsons have an increased risk of cancer like it's really hard to figure out like what you're actually supposed to be optimizing for and like it seems like actually quite impossible and also like ill-advised to try to get people to respond and change their behaviors based on research like this but it's like you know it does seem like hopefully that this type of research is instead used to push more of the onus onto society to care for ill people and to reduce like the idea that you are like individually responsible for bad health outcomes. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's an outcome which obviously, like, there's a lot of implications for that when it comes to disability justice and things like that. Um, and I also just want to, like, underscore, like, how big of an effect this is. So the relationship between a grandfather's ex-prisoner of war status and male line grandson's mortality is on par with the association between a dad's socioeconomic status and his son's older age mortality. So like we often talk about how much like, you know, a parent's socioeconomic status impacts their kids uh, later in life, um, you know, outcomes like this is this this is on par with that. And so I think that like, uh, I don't know if that should make us underrate how important uh, socioeconomic status is, but uh, I think likely it's it's the opposite. So I do want to make sure that we're doing a, like two things both true here in terms of the agency question, Jerusalem, because like on the one hand, yes, absolutely. This indicates that like much less is in your control than you might think. And therefore, there's much less weight to any of your choices. On the other hand, you know, for one thing, it can be kind of disempowering to or like it, it, if you if you end up thinking about the kind of structural hurdles that can end up seeming like you have no agency and talking about genetics can make it seem like you have no agency. And in fact, epigenetics kind of restores some agency to the conversation because it's like, actually, you're not born with the total blueprint of how your life is going to work. You know, there is going to be a change in in gene expression. You do have a certain, there is a certain amount of like indeterminacy in what genes you would pass on to any future children and how those would get expressed. And I think it's important, even in circumstances where like people acknowledge that they can't control everything, that they can't optimize, that they do understand that, you know, they have some room for agency and it's not totally like... Nobody wants the tom- their tombstone to say, well, they lived in really difficult times, right? There is a certain amount of power that individuals have, even if that is substantially constrained by the circumstances in which they live. 
Dylan and I talked earlier this year to Paige Harden, who's a you know a, a geneticist, and uh, you know she's written a, paper, a book recently on um, the impact of genetics on life outcomes. And one of the points that she makes, like a kind of a side point in her book, is just how interrelated um, nature and nurture are. Like we tend to like categorize these as very separate in our heads, but like you know if your genes make you like more predisposed to babbling at your parents at a very young age, your parents might like babble more at you, which may like, make it easier for you to learn language. Like, like, was that nature or was that nurture? Is it something that, you know, you're you were like predisposed to babbling like that and moving your mouth in a certain way does not seem to be a thing that was like, you know, told to you, but it did lead to a specific behavioral response from your parents. And that led to specific life outcomes that are important. And I think stuff like that is like, you know, like as Dara said, like, hopefully we start thinking of these things as much more interrelated instead of being as a, a situation where we're like, oh, like either it's completely in your control and genetics are really important. And like, you know, you're predestined from, you know, birth or before birth to have a specific life outcome. Or we can also think of it as like, no, like, you know, obviously you're put in a certain place based on the tools that you're given, but also like that's not immutable. Like you have you have agency there. Yeah, I, I guess my my very broad takeaway here is that that we should increase our estimate of the benefits of improving population health in a general sense. That uh, the main reason we should avoid having people be in POW camps is that it's bad to be in POW camps. Um, but, uh, a second. I mean, the last thing I'll say here, though, is that obviously the we're tracing male line grandsons here in this in this paper. And I think it's probably easier to, and you know, that happens in previous papers as well, because I think it's easier to do that kind of research because you just know that you got the Y chromosome from your father and you got it from his father. And so I wonder if that's going to be a problem for like future research, that it's it's more difficult to track what's happening to women because the genetics there are, are more difficult to suss out. But um, this definitely seems like an area where we're going to see a lot more, a lot more research. Um, and it is, this is very preliminary for, for Weeds listeners. All right, we should wrap it up there. Um, thank you so much to Jerusalem and to Dara for being here uh, and to Libby who joined us for, for the earlier parts of this discussion. Thank you to our producer, Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I am your host, Dylan Matthews. You can sign up to hear more Weeds takes on the Weeds newsletter. Go to vox.com slash weedsletter. We will be back in your feeds this Friday with a conversation between Jerusalem and Peter Newman, who uh, is an expert on extremism. They'll be talking about January 6th. We will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.